Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'll turn your Bible to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 39 this morning. The book of Psalms is divided up into various books. And in this sermon series, we've been looking at Psalms from the first book, Psalms of David. From book one, Psalm 39 gets us almost to the end of book one, which ends with Psalm 41. And Psalm 39 is a little bit different than what we looked at last time. Psalm 8 last time, which we just sang in our worship service, was a song of of majesty, a song of, of praise at God's creative power and his generosity. Psalm 39 is a lament. Psalm 39 is is a sad song that brings us hope. So hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. As I said, this is a lament. This is a psalm that speaks to us from a a place of deep sadness, a difficult song for us to sing, and yet a song that God has given us that has things to teach us. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. As we explore this lament, we pray that you would dry our tears and turn our weeping into joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's wonderful when the psalms that we preach become the songs that we sing. 
not just metaphorically, but literally, as happens in our service, as happened this week with Psalm 8, which we sang this morning after preaching last week. Psalm 39, as you can imagine, would be a more difficult psalm to accommodate in our services because these words, especially taken in, in part, can seem so despairing. Look away from me, O Lord, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's not a very inspirational refrain. And yet here in these words, there is encouragement. There are things here in this psalm, I think, that should speak to us, especially now. Psalm 39 is a poem about how to view life how to have the right perspective on life. This psalm shows that when believers fail to see rightly, our hypocrisy is exposed to the foolish. It also points to the right perspective, the way we ought to see things. What we ought to have is a sojourner's heart. We ought to be people, sojourners, whose hope is in God alone, and whose home is yet to come. All of that is contained in the words of Psalm 39. If you take a look at the text with me, you'll see that this psalm can be divided into three sections. There's three main sections. One of those sections has two parts in it, but but let's take a look. So the first section, just the first three verses, these are the words that begin, I said I will guard my ways. And then it ends at the end of that first stanza, then I spoke with my tongue. In the first three verses, the psalmist is talking here about an attempt at silence. He's going to shut up, basically. He's going to keep silent. The question is why? What's the point of this silence? Why is it that he's trying to contain himself and not speak? Well, he says he's, he's guarding his mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So the reason why he's not speaking out loud, the reason why he's not giving voice to the the desires or the longings or the the frustrations of his heart is because of who else is in the room. He doesn't want to speak these words in the presence of the wicked, in the presence of the foolish. Because he knows that, that his criticism is ultimately a criticism of God. He's frustrated by the suffering in his life that God has permitted, that God has brought about, that he sees, as we'll learn later, as a kind of discipline. But he knows that if he complains aloud, he invites those around him, the wicked, to join in that complaint, to show their contempt for God. It's as if by giving word to his emotions, he will give permission to God's critics enemies and detractors to pile on. And he doesn't want to do that. But there's something else as well that motivates this silence. I think he keeps quiet because he knows there's something wrong about what he's going to say. That he wants to say it, but he shouldn't. Because it's not right. Because it doesn't reflect the right way of thinking. This complaint that he wants to speak it's going to come out in such a way and it's going to say things that, that really are themselves sinful. And he doesn't want to add on more to his problems. But you can sympathize 
with the difficulty of, of keeping quiet doesn't work out very well here. He knows he ought to keep quiet. He knows he shouldn't say what's on his heart. I was mute and silent, he says. I held my peace to no avail. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. That's something we can all relate to. He can't take it. In the end, it's more important to have his say than it is to do what's right. And before you judge that impulse, remember, that's exactly what happens in the life of that righteous man, Job. If Job was a book of two chapters, Job would come off looking fantastic. But unfortunately, at the beginning of chapter 3, having endured in silence all his suffering, refused to criticize or complain about his lot in life. At the beginning of chapter 3 of Job, he begins by cursing the day he was born and goes on to complain. We can all relate. It's not easy to be silent. After this attempt at silence in the first three verses, in the, the middle section of the psalm, you have what you might think of as an appeal for understanding. If I can't keep quiet, at least I can kind of state my case. I can tell you what I'm looking for. Right Now, this middle section goes from verses 4 all the way to verse 11. So, from, O Lord, make me know my end, all the way down to, uh, surely all mankind is a mere breath. As a shorthand, you can look at the notations in the margin, Selah, and you can see the divisions between the two sections. The first section of this middle part is uh, two verses, verses 4 and 5, that end with that first Selah. And then the second section is verses 7 through 11, that end with that second Selah. And even if we didn't have the Selah there as a clue, We'd have something else as a clue to tell us that these are ending of sections. They end in more or less the same words. You look at that first Selah, which is the end of verse 5. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. You go down to the end of verse 11. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. You can see these words, which are reminiscent of something you'd find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Something you'd find in wisdom literature, and here they are in Psalm 39. There's a lesson in this middle section. In fact, there's more than one. We might distill the first one this way. Life is short. Teach me to value what matters. But then we also see that there's a need for deliverance from sin. I need to be delivered from my sin because my suffering in this life is a form of discipline from God. So it's a, a a desire for understanding from God. Give me wisdom. Teach me to number my days, what the measure of my days is, to understand the, 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 the shortness of my life. But along with that, deliver me from my transgressions. Forgive me from my sin, because this is the source of my trouble. And then finally, in the last two verses, 12 and 13, we have what we might think of as a sojourner's prayer. A realization, who I am, how I should see the world. Like my ancestors in the faith, I am a sojourner. And that's how I ought to see the world. One commentator on this verse writes, Land, income, desires, enemies, friends, these are things 
that may become the stuff of life as if it were somehow going to continue forever. But life is limited in its span. Its meaning is to be found. It must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. In other words, we are sojourners in this life. This world is not our home. And yet, in this sojourner's prayer, there's also in verse 13 a cry for relief. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Relieve my suffering in this short life by reconciling me to you. It's important to see that the discipline that the psalmist sings about, the discipline that eats away like a moth at our desires, that discipline comes because of sin, the sin that separates us from God. When the psalmist cries out to have that suffering end, give me a little peace for the rest of my short life, that's a cry, not just stop the pain, that's a cry for reconciliation. Not just stop, stop letting me suffer, but let us be at peace with one another. Reconcile my heart to yours. That's the core of a sojourner's prayer. As you think about these words, just a few reflections. First, to live faithfully in times of suffering, you have to see life the right way. To live faithfully in times of suffering, you have to see life the right way. In other words, if you have a doing problem, ultimately you have a seeing problem. You're uncertain how to live, what to do, what choices to make. Behind all that is a problem in perspective because action is the fruit, but the heart is the tree that it comes from. In the fallen world that we live in, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not measured in outcome. It's not measured in earthly rewards. It's not even measured sometimes in action. It's not that believers and unbelievers live and choose in radically different ways. Ultimately, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is a difference in perspective, a difference in words, a difference in seeing. If you turn to James chapter 4, read these words starting in verse 13. James writes, Come now, you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You read those words of James and you think, man, this guy would be terrible to have in a conversation. James must have been one of those guys that, that, that policed everybody's words down to the littlest detail. You said, look, I'm going to open up a new business in this town and we'll be there for a while. Hopefully we'll make a profit. Yay. And then James comes along and says, hey, you have no idea. You could be dead tomorrow. You should say, if God wills it, you will do these things. And you're like, well, okay, isn't that implied? But for James, the point is, the way that we speak about things becomes the way that we see them. And the way that we speak about things reveals the way that we see them. And if we speak in ways that suggest that we don't think our lives are going to come to an end, that we don't think ultimately it's all in God's hands, that becomes the way that we live. 
we have a seeing problem, it will become a doing problem, in other words. And if we want to live faithfully in times of suffering, we have to see life the right way. We need wisdom, in other words. You can't meet the challenges of old age, of sickness, of mortality, without the wisdom of old age and sickness and mortality. Wisdom doesn't come just by being in the circumstances. Wisdom comes from the Lord. The Lord who teaches us that life is short. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. The Lord who tells us to value what matters. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. The Lord who teaches us also the futility of our ambition, our desire. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. And the the language there, what is dear to him, these are desires, or you might think of it as things we covet. Things that we uh, covet after. We desire corruptly. They're taken away from us. What it boils down to is this. Either there is no hope, or there is hope in God alone. And there's no third alternative. Either there is no hope or there is hope in God alone. And there is nothing else. And when your words reveal the wrong perspective, you're not just getting it wrong, you're also revealing that wrongness to the world. Your hypocrisy is exposed, exposed to the people the psalmist describes as the foolish, the wicked. In other words, Tell you something that I'm sure your mother has told you. It's better sometimes to keep your mouth shut. Better sometimes just to keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 11.12 says, Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Then James. James 1.26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. But we want to have our say. We can't keep it bottled in. You ever ask yourself why? Why is it so difficult to keep quiet even when we know we should? Why is it so important to have our say? Why does even righteous Job need to talk out loud? It's because of an overwhelming desire to justify ourselves, to show that we're right. This is what you find in Job 32 when Job's young friend Elihu rebukes Job, he rebukes Job because Job justified himself rather than God. In his suffering, Job, a righteous man who didn't deserve what he got, should have justified God instead of himself. Maybe he should have kept his mouth shut. What you reveal when you lash out at your enemies when you lash out at your friends, when you lash out at your Lord, is that you've missed the point of life. 
Same commenter writes these words, his failure to perceive this truth, that transgressions must be dealt with, made him vulnerable in another sense. He claimed to be a man of faith, but his obsession with enemies and the trappings of mortal life had become such that even a fool could see that he had missed the point of life. The fool might not agree with this perspective on life, but could reproach him for the double standard by which he lived. When you have your say, you lash out, you reveal. You reveal that you don't get it, that you don't see what your need is, despite your claims to religion, as James would say. It's a sobering thought. We reveal when we open our mouths that we don't see the world rightly, that we don't see our suffering rightly. So the question is how to see it rightly. And the answer that the psalmist gives us is to see it as a sojourner would. To see it as one who is a sojourner in the land. The right perspective is the sojourner's heart, which means putting your hope in God alone and remembering that your home is still to come. If you think about the example of Jesus and the words of Jesus, Jesus demonstrates throughout his life that he is a sojourner, that he has come to dwell among us to do the work that is necessary to do, but his eyes are always fixed on his Father's will. His eyes are always fixed on what is to come. And if that's true for Christ, it should be true also for Christ's people. In other words, don't live like this is your promised land. Don't live like this is your promised land. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. On the visitation. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh, to the burning in your heart, to the need to justify yourself. Instead, conduct yourself honorably so that the wicked, so that the foolish, when they go to speak against you, see your good deeds and glorify God. Look, I get it. If you have no faith in Christ, then this is your home. This is your home. And all there is to cherish is fleeting. It passes away. It's a breath, a vapor, as the psalmist says. All that you love, all that you care for is fleeting and meaningless stuff. You are, as the psalmist says, in turmoil for nothing. You amass wealth. You accomplish great things for nothing. Because all of it will be passed down to others, and you will be forgotten. If you have no faith in Christ, then this is your home. And living as if this is your land of promise makes a kind of sense, because this is all there is. But for those whose hope is in Christ, we have something more than this to live for. And knowing that changes the way we live in this passing moment. It means that we endure the tragedies of this life with a different perspective. 
don't live as if this is your promised land because your promised land is still to come. The fear, the doubt, the uncertainty that plagues us here can consume us if we forget that the destination where we're traveling to is still on the horizon, that we are not inhabitants here. We are sojourners in the land, guests. And if that's true, then set your desires on things to come. The desires of your heart, the things that you long for, long for the things that last, that endure, long for the things that don't pass away at a moment, long for the things that are not meaningless, pointless. Set your desires on the land to come, which is what the people of God have always done, is what the saints, the heroes of the faith have been known for. Hebrews 11 the catalog of the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. Read these words starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So let our longings be directed towards a better country and let our speech be directed towards a better country that is a heavenly one and not on the cares of this world. The fire that burns within the people of Christ is not the fire of frustration. It is the fire of the Emmaus Road. It is the burning within us that comes when he reveals himself to us in power. Our hearts burn within us, not because we cannot voice our complaint, but because we must, even in the midst of this darkness, voice our praise to him. The sojourner's heart burns with a longing for the world that is to come. And it gives voice to a praise to the God of all things who will deliver on his promises to us and bring us into that land that he's made for us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.